wonder-working stars in the precious... Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. You sure you want to hear it? Alright then. Pour yourself another rum toddy and pull up close to the fire. It's gonna be a long story and I don't want you getting cold. Uh, well, this happened a number of years ago. In this very cabin, which belonged to my aunt and uncle at the time. They were getting on in years and didn't have much interest in gutting out the winters anymore, so they went to stay with a cousin in Plumtree, Tennessee. By then, I'd outgrown my irresponsible years, so they gave me a spare key and said, Listen, anytime you want to get away from the city, the place is yours. Come up, sit by the wood stove, read a book, get your mind off things. As it happened, there was a lot to get your mind off that winter. Year of the election, everyone realizing that the world was going to shit, and not to mention some stuff in my personal life that I'm not proud of and I don't want to talk about. So I caught the Northland bus to Gravenhurst, hitchhiked to Bala, and then walked the hour and a half to the cabin. Which was fine at first, since it was a sunny day and only a few degrees below zero. But living down south in the city, nowadays especially, it's easy to forget what a real winter's like. When it only gets below minus twenty once or twice a year, you start to think it's unusual. You forget what it's like when the world itself is trying to kill you. Every breath of every minute of every day for half the year, for your entire life. You forget how easy it is to just stop fighting, relax, and let the snow swallow you up. All that's to say that 20 minutes into my hike, the temperature starts to drop. 30 degrees in 30 minutes. Ever felt anything like it in my life? The clouds thickened out of nowhere like curdling milk. Under all my layers, hot sweat had rolled down my cheek. By the end of the walk, it had turned into sheets of ice against my skin. By the time I reached the cabin, it was a rolling blizzard, and I was colder than I'd ever been in my life. Later, I found out it was the coldest that day had been in a hundred years. Well, that's climate change. Everything extreme on every end. I'm convinced I nearly died on the road that afternoon. And there'd be times that night when I wasn't sure I hadn't, and that the cabin I'd arrived at wasn't hell. But, hell or no, I made it. And when I lit the stove, so much ice and snowfall thawed off me that I thought my bones must have been melting. I had a glass of hot whiskey, ate spaghetti from the can, and went to bed. Hmm. I guess I've got to tell you a little bit about this cabin. It's both older and younger than it looks. When my aunt and uncle bought the place, it was a real derelict. Four walls and a wood furnace perched on concrete piles driven into the rock. It took 40 years of living up here for them to make it a home. One room at a time. One saved paycheck at a time. 
The going was slow. Labor's cheap up here in the off-season, but nobody local wanted to work on the old Glanton place. The Glantons. They were the family who lived here before. It was their abandoned shack Michael picked up for nothing back in the 70s. County records say they'd been here since at least 1910, but the rumors and secret tales of local history say they may have been doing strange things out here for a hundred years before that. The Glantons. Look, I didn't take a lot of history in school, but I took enough to know that settlers were the kind of people who were, at best, desperate, at worst, crazy. You hear old folks up here talk about the Glantons, and they'll say they were both. One of the last people to hang in this country was a Glanton, and they hanged him for the kind of crimes you only work your way up by starting out with the neighborhood dogs as a kid. Ask folks around here, they'll say he wasn't the first Glanton like that. Not by a long shot. The sad truth is, countries like ours only exist because of Glantons. You need bad, crazy people to settle in the woods and drive out the people already living there, otherwise your colony never gets off the ground. Some people think that says something about Glanton types. I think it says something about a country. Well, anyway, after the last Glanton died, nobody else up here would touch the property, so we got it. Even today, I'm not sure it was a great investment. Hmm. Here's an example. You can't see it now because of all the snow, but around front, there's an old wooden frame rising out of the ground. It used to be covered in wood planks, but now it's just the frame. I noticed it from time to time when I came up as a kid, but never paid too much attention. Thought it was probably just the foundation for a shed or something, until once, when I came up in the summer, my uncle was out there doing repairs on it. I asked him if he was rebuilding the shed, and he looked at me like the dumb city kid I was, and he said, Shed? What are you talking about? Son, this is a grave. You see, up here, on the rocks, the soil's not deep enough to bury a body right. So someone 60 or 100 or 150 years ago dug down as far as they could and built up a wooden frame around the corpse and filled it with earth. So what are you doing with it, I asked him. He reached out and he showed me one of the black nails he was putting through the new bright planks. Iron nails and oak boards, he said, to keep the dead down. I guess my eyes must have widened because he burst out laughing after that. Still, I was never quite sure whether he was joking or not, and that mental image stuck with me, the strange sight of my uncle rebuilding a grave. I spent most of that afternoon helping him. He told me about how, even decades on, people still called the property the Glanton Place, and wouldn't drive past it. So, there you go. Settlers. Fine for a national mythology, but nobody liked living near the Glantons, even if they were dead. Getting another round? Here, top me up. Thanks. Well, to get back to my story, the night of the blizzard, it got even colder as I slept. I woke partway through the night to use the toilet, and the mercury had hit negative 45. First time I'd ever seen negative 45. I turned on the porch light, it was a full whiteout outside. I flicked it off, went back to bed. My bed was so warm, and it was so dark, and the hush of air was so soft, that when I pulled the sheets over me, I fell asleep immediately. I was woken again by a loud crack outside. Just a tree snapping from the cold, I thought. May as well go back to sleep. But when I closed my eyes again, I found I was wide awake, with adrenaline coursing through my arteries. I rolled to my phone. 
4.45 a.m. I sat on the edge of the bed, rubbing my eyes. Just as I was reaching for the light, I heard a noise outside. I froze. Probably just a bear or a deer or the wind shifting a pile of snow. But still, I pulled back from the light, crept out of my bed and down the stair. Outside, a sensor had activated the porch light, and through the door's frosted glass, I saw the silhouette of a man. The doorknob turned. Somebody tried to push it open, but it was locked. I crept back upstairs, my heart throbbing in my neck. In my aunt and uncle's room, an old shotgun hung over the headboard. I pulled it down and cracked the breech. Empty. I ripped open a desk drawer on the other side of the room and shone my phone's flashlight into it. Among the paper clips and old hardened erasers, I found a single old shell. I held it to the light. It was filled with rock salt. Non-lethal, supposedly. Something rattled below the window outside, and I leaned close to the glass. The west sensor light had gone on. Below me, fumbling at the downstairs window, was a dead man. He'd been buried in his long underwear, and the sight of a man in the snow wearing nothing but one-piece long johns might have been funny if it weren't for the rest of him. His bare feet scrabbled among the snow, and his balding head was covered in lank streaks of yellow-white hair. His skin was mottled brown and blue with frostbite, and his bony hands and feet ended in long, yellow-brown nails. I pulled back from the window just as he looked up, his eyes bleary with frost and his purple lips drawn back over a handful of cracked brown teeth. I leaned against the wall, chest pumping, wrestling with a grisly fear. Downstairs, it was trudging around the corner of the house. I moved. Rummaging through the desk again, I found something that made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I brought it to the light. A single nail cast in black wrought iron. Downstairs, the dead man's hands clawed at one of the windows. I rushed to the pantry, and in the darkness shoved cans aside and threw bags of rice on the floor, half choking as a bag of flour split at eye level. But I found what I was looking for. An old cardboard box. Shotgun shells. I ripped it down from the shelf, but my stomach sank before I even looked inside. From its weight, I could tell the box was nearly empty. Only two shells rattled around inside. One was an old lead slug. I loaded it. The other was filled with rock salt again. I tossed it into my pocket with the nail and stepped back into the kitchen. I found myself looking out the window over the sink. Right outside, with his face pressed up against the glass, was the dead man. Even if his face hadn't half rotted away, he would have been a mean-looking son of a bitch. His nose had been broken and healed long before the cartilage dissolved, and he wasn't someone who looked like he bathed much, even before they put him in the ground. For a long moment, we stared into each other's eyes, and then he was gone. I stepped back into the front hallway. That silhouette was framed in the door again. I checked that the shotgun's safety was off. The shadow raised one arm, and a deep knock echoed through the cabin. I said nothing. I didn't move. Outside, the winds howled their woes to the homeless snows, but inside, the only sounds were the hush of the air and the rush of blood in my ears. A cold voice spoke on the other side of the door. You mind if I come in? I'm chilled clean through to the bone. My mouth went dry. I swallowed. I know you're in there. No use pretending otherwise. 
Go away. We don't take visitors this time of night. A graveyard chuckle sounded through the door. That's all right. He pressed against the glass. I'm not a visitor, because this is my fucking house. My mouth was so dry I could barely speak. I chewed my tongue for saliva. It's not yours anymore, Glanton. Your house is out there in a hole in the ground. Another dry chuckle, this time almost drowned out by the rising wail of the wind. Look at it this way. Either you let me in now, or I break down the door and let in the cold and storm. I lowered the gun. Even if the dead man didn't get me, I'd freeze by morning if he broke the door. Just standing close to it was enough to leach the warmth from my bones. My toes were already halfway numb. I'm counting to five. One. No need, Glanton. I'm going to let you in. I don't know why I was calling it Glanton. That hateful thing out there wasn't Glanton anymore. It wasn't anybody anymore. It was just hunger in a frame. I held up the shotgun, stepped toward the door. With every step, the air around me grew colder, until I stood just an arm's length from the glass, and the chill burned in my lungs. I reached for the lock. The brass was so cold that for a moment my fingers stuck. I flicked at ninety degrees, and then sprang back, expecting the door to burst open and the dead man to lunge for my throat. But instead, a slow moment passed. The knob began to turn. A crack appeared around the edge of the door, and through it, the wind stabbed like a driven nail. The door swung a little wider, and the dead man stepped around it, pushing it shut behind him. Once again, the only sounds to hear were the heater and one man breathing, and, after a moment, the drip of water from the thawing dead man. <sighs> it's nice to feel warm. It ain't being dead, kid. It's the icy grave that pains. Well, you can take a few minutes to warm up, but after that I want you to be on your way. He hearkened with a grin, dead gums drawn back to show the rotting roots of his teeth. You do, eh? Well, you might as well let me warm up by the fire, so I'll thaw more quickly. Fair enough. I backed away, still pointing the gun at him. Keep your distance, though. What? Don't you trust me? He followed close behind me, close as I'd let him. Not if you were alive. Less now that you're dead. Wow. You know, that's the problem with you city people. You come up here with your expensive way of talking, and you think you're better than us. Well, guess what, city boy? He raised one blue hand. Brown water beaded across it as the permafrost of his flesh began to thaw. We all freeze in the cold. He flung himself down in a chair by the fire and gestured for me to sit in the chair across from him. I stood with it between us, resting the shotgun on one of the wings. Aren't you going to offer me a drink? Everything else aside, I was starting to loathe the thing personally. And that was good. It was easier to hate him than be afraid of him. But every couple of seconds, I was surprised anew by how unnatural, disgusting, and wrong he was. As the frost seeped from his body, he was starting to smell. But that was good too, I thought. It stood to reason that the more he thawed, the more chance there was I could damage him with the gun. You take whiskey? The dead man chuckled, and what had been a dry chuckle before now sounded wet, as fluid began filling its lungs. Yeah, I take whiskey. Good, because that's what we've got. I stepped back to the sideboard. There was a bottle of shit whiskey in the cabinet below, but I didn't want to take my eyes or the gun off the dead man. 
so it seemed he'd be getting the good stuff. With one hand, I flipped over the two tumblers, unscrewed the lid from the bottle of single malt, and poured a couple of glasses. I looked down for a second, and when I looked back, I half expected him to be on his feet, coming for me with those clawed fingers. But no. He just sat there, quietly dripping, looking cool and calm in the heat of the furnace. You know, first time I ever killed someone was on a night like this. I put the second glass of whiskey on the floor and kicked it over to him. It slid across the floorboard, stopping just short of his foot. Shut up and drink your whiskey. He laughed and picked it up. My own mother, Alice May Clanton, cracked her with an iron pan then stuffed her head in the furnace right over there. Whoosh! I said nothing. What's the matter? Not sure whether to believe me? Well, you never but my mother. Lucky for you, she was almost as bad as me. The wind howled outside. Yes, sir. A night just like this one. Maybe that's what brought me back. Or maybe God just thought it was time for you city people to get the fuck back where you came from. He took a slug of his whiskey, and I pulled the trigger. I went deaf for a second. The recoil knocked me back into the sideboard. Glass cracked in the cabinet door, cutting me. The slug smacked into the dead man's chest, knocking him backwards into the seat. Fishing in my pocket for the third round, I found the nail and pressed it into the soft plastic of the shell. Then I cracked the gun, reloaded the empty barrel, and trained it on the dead man again. Glanton didn't move. The adrenaline began to drain out of my blood, but a small voice inside screamed against the doors of my brain, No. Don't fall for it. Then, the dead man started to laugh and sat up. He hadn't even let go of his glass of whiskey. <laughs> I bet you thought that gun was going to stop me, huh? Just a warning shot. Yeah? Hope you've got some better ammunition in there. Count on it. Though honestly, I don't know what you have in there that would stop me. Maybe I haven't noticed, but I'm already dead. He sniffed the air. Your leg's bleeding. I know. Then you should also know that the smell is driving me crazy. And once I've spent a little more time by this lovely fire, because I'm in no rush, I'm going to come over there, open up your veins, and drink the blood right out of you. Sweet, warm life, straight from the source. The dead man laughed again, closing his eyes as he took another drink of smoky liquor. While I thought he was distracted, I glanced at the door. Oh, you're thinking of running? Be my guest. You aren't going to get far without a coat out in 45 below. I'll just sit here by the flames, and once I'm good and toasty, then I'll head back out, grab your frozen body, and drag it back here by the fire. Then we two dead fellas can sit here and get to know each other while we wait for your blood to melt. On the other side of the windows behind him were utter darkness and the moaning gale. That was the first moment it became truly real to me that I was probably going to die. Yeah, you're starting to realize it now, aren't you? You can tax your brawn and brains, but there's nowhere to go. You're stuck here with me, and all this is just borrowed time. Me having some fun and a little chit-chat before I rip you open with my fingers. He took a drink. The truth is, you're as dead as all the Glantons, and you have been from the moment I climbed out of that grave. We'll see. I still had two shells. 
and his flesh was looking softer by the minute. Yeah, we will. God, this is good whiskey. If I could only taste it. He lifted up his chin, so I could see the liquid dripping down the inside of his moth-eaten throat. Kind of you to serve it without rocks. I think I've had enough of ice for a while. He looked at me again. The crystals had melted from his eyes and were running down his withered cheeks like tears. But even thawed, his dead blue eyes were cold as the forty below night. Look at you. You come from the city and build over my house. And then you sit here by your nice warm fire while I freeze in my grave. And you drink your nice golden whiskey, which I can't even taste. I hate you, you know that. And I'm gonna enjoy killing you, city boy, even more than I enjoy sitting by this fire. A pool of putrid brownish water had formed underneath him. The room now stank of death and dead bodies. I supposed it was about to smell even more like that. You don't even know me. I know you plenty. And then, throwing aside the pretense of humanity, it pulled itself to its feet and shrieked at me, unhinged jaws hanging low on scraps of tendon. I pulled the trigger again and was flung backwards by the recoil. The half-inch shell sent salt ripping into Glanton's body, and though the dead man screamed and streams of brown fluid gushed from the gashes, he kept his feet and lurched towards me. Last chance! I fired again. More salt ripped through him. But this time, among the shrapnel, a single iron nail, two inches long, pinwheeled through the air and buried itself in the creature's sodden flesh. It shrieked again and lunged past me, making for the front entrance. I was knocked half off my feet, and as I caught my balance, it ripped open the door, bounding out into the cold. A blast of wind hit me, and doubled over, I fought my way to the threshold. Just before I slammed the door shut, I saw the storm had finished, and a fresh set of uneven footprints were laid into the snow, heading out towards a sky that was just beginning to lighten. According to the thermometer, it was just as cold that morning as it had been the night before, but properly dressed, with the sun shining, and holding an oak plank filled with iron nails, I felt as warm as a running engine. It was only about a hundred meters out into the woods that I found Glanton's body, frozen quiet as clay, just where it had been when the streak of dawn struck it. In the daylight, he looked smaller, shrunken, ghastly pale. But at that point, I didn't have a lot of pity in me. I dragged his body back to the cabin, and where his grave had been, I tore up planks, keeping up fuel for a bonfire. The flames soared, and I doused the body in gasoline, stuffing it into the roaring fire. It started to sizzle almost immediately, as the ice in the tissue dissolved and vaporized. But for a second, through the flames, I thought those dead eyes looked at me again, and that dead jaw tried to speak. <laughs> but I flung more gas in the blaze, and whatever words that might have come out were drowned in the whoosh of the greasy smoke that streaked down the sky. Well, I never explained the mess to my uncle, and he never asked. I suppose he didn't mind too much, though, since when he died, he left what the will called the old Glanton place to me. As for me, I like to think I finished the renovations he worked on his whole life. As soon as he was cremated, I tore down the original structure and put up a brand new cabin made from bright oak boards and black iron nails. Thank you.
The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash thewrongstation. This week's episode, In the Dead of Night, was written by Alexander Saxton. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Ilana Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Batello, and Jacob BRDS. So until next time, thank you for listening.